we are going to be looking at the book of Daniel this morning in our series Life in Exile. You can see there an outline in your bulletin. We come to Christ, we are what? We're born again when we come to Christ. That means we become adopted into God's family. We are citizens of a new kingdom. Right, Our old life dies with Christ. Through faith we've been raised up to new life in Christ. And I pray this morning that you are celebrating that new life. I pray this morning that for some of you that maybe God is even stirring up faith in you to come into the kingdom. But we are now citizens of heaven, which means we're exiles of this world. Right? That's been what we've been talking about the last few weeks. We live as exiles until Christ's return. Saw last week in John chapter 17 as Jesus prayed for his followers that we're called to be in the world. We stay in the world, but we're not of the world. We don't take on the values and the belief systems and the priorities of the world. But but our Christian experience in the, in exile is one of, of conflict, of dissonance, right? Our Christian experience and the reality of the world, often there's conflict, there's confusion, and all of this tension can oftentimes lead to one of two temptations, either the temptation to assimilate, and I've got to be in the world, right? Or to withdraw and to say, well, I'm not of the world. And we talked last week about these four different approaches to the temptation, either to just give in and assimilate or to completely withdraw. You can see... In your outline there, and, and maybe on the screen, if you're sitting on this side, you can probably see it. Um, the first way to handle this temptation and the, the approach to exile is, is what I call the integrated citizen, right? And that means you just want to belong. I just want to belong to the world. I'm going to assimilate, conform. Not only am I going to adapt, but I'm going to adapt to the point of compromise so that I fit in, so that I could truly be an integrated citizen of this world. And so to do that, Folks that, that operate this way have to separate the sacred from the secular. And so their personal life becomes sacred and their secular life becomes public. And, and end, you end up hiding your faith in public. And so you're driven by the need for acceptance, by really ultimately faithlessness and a, and a cowardice. The church becomes sort of a, a personal retreat for you, right? In essence, a day spa. You stop by once or twice a month to get cleaned up and refreshed. And the message to the world, if you try to live your life as an integrated citizen, is really, you know, to each his own. I'll be a Christian, you be whatever you want. Now this approach to assimilate, you may start out as a Christian, but it's a dangerous place to be. To try to hold on to your faith from this perspective. I think it's untenable in the long run because there's such a high risk of compromise. You end up compromising your convictions, losing your faith in your Christian identity. Now we may slip into this in small ways, the tendency to assimilate. Right where you're at a party or you're with neighbors and you, you sort of hide things. For me, I can only assimilate for a, a short amount of time because once people find out I'm a pastor, my cover's blown, right? So I'm actually thankful for that. But it is a challenge. The second way to approach life in exile is what I call the displaced defender, right? And, and your conviction is this is my world, this is Christian's world, we've been displaced and we need to defend it. And so you're going to attack, attack the godless institutions of the world, try to recapture what you believe rightly belongs to the church, and you're going to armor up and fight. Or maybe you withdraw, maybe it's a strategic withdrawal to dig a trench and to wait for a more opportune time to attack. And you're going to overemphasize, those that fall into this, as I at times do, we overemphasize the public sphere, and we think, well, that's the only platform to advance the kingdom. And at times, Christians can be driven by this defender mentality, and we can slip into anger, sense of entitlement, 
even resentment. And the church, the church simply becomes a battle station. The church is a trench and we dig down and we hold our position until we can attack. And the message to the world simply becomes one of judgment. And there are various cultural issues that can strike a nerve that can cause us to slip into this defender mentality where our instinct is to go into fight mode. For me, particularly if I read the news or hear stories about gun violence or issues of racial injustice or we hear about the abortion crisis or the immigrant crisis or we read about the transgender confusion and deception or we hear about the opioid epidemic, these things rightfully stir us to want to act. To want to bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. And Christians should care deeply about all of those issues and many. But there are two important questions we have to ask ourselves when we go into fight mode. What's our motivation and what's our priority? See, are we motivated by anger and a sense of entitlement? Or are we motivated by compassion and desire to glorify God? Is our priority to see society changed by forcing external obedience? Or by transforming people through the internal work of Christ? Now look, as we'll see today and next week, Christians are called to the public sphere. We should have a role, but it has to be done in the right way. And if we overemphasize the public sphere, we run the risk of losing our own personal spirituality and losing the very thing that we're fighting for. Now the third approach to dealing with these temptations in exile is is what I call the visiting outsider. And the visiting outsider says, not only am I not a citizen of this world, but I don't even want to live here. I'm just visiting. I'm an outsider. I'm going to withdraw. And I'm going to abandon society. I'm just going to seek to preserve my own personal purity, the purity of my family. I'm going to huddle up and wait it out for Jesus to return. And what happens is we can end up overemphasizing not the public sphere, but the, the private sphere. And we think that all that matters is our personal purity. But we forget that we have a mission and we need to interact with the world in order to grow in purity. And ultimately, this kind of mentality is driven by fear, a fear of sin, a fear of other sinners. It's driven by a desire to self-preserve and and ultimately a detachment, a detachment from the lost, a detachment for what God is doing in his great rescue plan. The church for the visiting outsider simply becomes a bunker. It's just a shelter to go and hide. And there is something about this withdrawal mentality that sounds inviting, right? At times we get fed up with the brokenness, with the hurt, with the sinfulness of the world, and we just want to find shelter. Particularly when we have young kids, right? We just want to protect them from the world, protect them from temptation and the influence of the evil around us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 6, we're going to look at later today, makes it clear that we have been called out. We are God's people. We do need to be separate. And yet, as we learned last week from Jesus, we are not called out of the world. We remain in the world. And if we withdraw, friends, if we completely withdraw, no matter how lost and broken and wicked this world is, we lose our ability to transform the people around us and ultimately the society around us. And we may think we're protecting our personal purity, but in the process, we've lost our witness. Now, as we look at these first three approaches... We often can turn on one another. Let's be honest for a minute. We can look at others in the body of Christ and be judgmental, be critical. And we can say, well, that guy's a sellout. Do you see what, what he's doing in the workplace? Do you see the kind of involvement he has in the community? He, he's, he's lost his, his witness. And, and others we can point and look and you say, well, they've just withdrawn. They're just circling up in their holy huddle. 
We can be very critical of one another, but let's be honest. Depending upon the day, depending upon what's in the news, depending upon your own mood, you may find yourself oscillating between all three of these positions as, as I at times do. Amen? See, the reality is we all struggle, but there's another way. And, and the fourth way that, I, that I've been laying out to us is what I call the faithful ambassador. That as Jesus prayed for us in John 17, we would be in the world, but not do we want to try that other mic? This one keeps, keeps going out. We can try that and see if that helps at all. Um, the faithful ambassador is aware of the reality that they're living in a foreign country, right? We are living in a foreign country, but we've been sent here on assignment. We've been sent here with a mission as ambassadors to invest in society, to invest and engage in the world around us. How's that? And so we are on mission, right? We can't withdraw. We can't abandon. We are on mission. We are not of the world. We're sent as ambassadors to live for the king. And that means we live on mission. That means we are salt and light to a dying world. And we have to live. We have to live in the tension of our private faith and the public sphere. And those are often in conflict, but the ambassador realizes he's got to stick it out. And by God's grace, find a way. Ultimately, we need to be driven by faith. We need to be driven by courage to live in the world. We need to be, living, be driven by compassion. By compassion for the people around us. God's children whom He has called to Himself. And so as we live together on mission, the church becomes an embassy. It becomes a, it becomes a, 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 a missional outpost a place where we can go to connect with the kingdom, where we can be trained, where we can connect with the homeland and could be built up to be sent out with the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel to take Christ and his salvation to the world. And yes, as ambassadors, we need to be willing to adapt to the culture around us as ambassadors do when they're living in a foreign land. Not in such a way that will cause compromise, and we'll unpack that in a minute. But there's going to be adjustments in our style and our language and our dress and our customs. We need to stay engaged in public life. We need to be willing to address social issues. Hopefully having built up a reputation. Having earned a voice in our culture. Not shouting as outsiders, but speaking as ambassadors who have a right to bring the message of God. We do need to protect our personal faith. We need to maintain purity. We do need to set up personal boundaries. And the ambassador navigates these tensions. And all of this can be very overwhelming. I talked to somebody this week who listened to our message last week. And I unpacked these four things. And they're like, I'm overwhelmed. Praise God that we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to navigate us with the big picture approach, with the daily small decisions. We do live in exile. I mentioned last week that the Israelites who lived in the time of the Babylonian exile, formulate a helpful paradigm for us. And so we're going to spend the remainder of our time giving a, a, a big picture overview of the life of Daniel as he found himself in Babylon, in exile. We're going to look at the way that he and his three friends lived. And they become a prime example for how we can not only survive but thrive, how we can be sustained in exile. So open up to Daniel chapter 1. Looks like there's still a couple of Bibles on those back tables if you don't have one, or you can pull it up on your phone. We're going to just look at a couple different sections from the beginning of the book. 
Now, some of you remember, we just got done the book of Judges, right? And after the period of the Judges, the Israelites end up uniting the 12 tribes under King Saul. And for a while, the kingdom is united, but that doesn't last. Eventually, the tribes split, and the 10 tribes in the north form the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom eventually becomes unfaithful. And in 722 B.C., God sends in the Assyrians as an act of judgment to conquer the northern tribes. Now, in the south... Judah and Benjamin maintain their faithfulness to Yahweh a little bit longer, but they eventually give into idolatry as well. And after years and years of sending prophets to warn them, God eventually sends in the massive Babylonian empire. Some of you can maybe see on the map this green swath that just overtook the Middle East, conquering the kingdom of Judah. The first attack on the city of Jerusalem happened in about 605 B.C. under the reign of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you remember him from your Sunday school days, right? And the army came in and they took the treasures from the city, the resources from the city. And part of the resources of the city were the nobles and the young men in positions of leadership. They were educated class and they took them back to Babylon. And we're going to read today about Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, these four young Israelites. They were deported from Jerusalem to live in Babylon, to be trained in the Babylonian court. That was the first wave of Babylonian exile. And over the course of the next 20 years, three more times the army of Babylon would come in and attack Jerusalem. And eventually thousands and thousands of God's people from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin would find themselves in Babylon, living for 70 years in exile. See, the Babylonians didn't just conquer nations. They relocated them. They demoralized them. They indoctrinated them with their culture. They lived that way for 70 years until in 538 God sent in the Persians and the Persians allowed the Jewish people to return. But think about that for a moment. You're living in Babylon, the capital city of this massive, godless enemy empire. Babylon was a well-established city, established over a thousand years prior to the period we're going to read about today. At its height, it was a city of three square miles along the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq. Babylon was a sophisticated society noted for the early development of of writing and history and mathematics and biology and astronomy. It was a military powerhouse. The city would have been an architectural wonder, extravagant, decadent, this cosmopolitan center. At the center of the city of Babylon was this huge tower to the god Marduk, who they believed was the creator god and what they would have seen as the chief of the pantheon of gods. See, it was, a, it was a polytheistic society. There were over 50 temples to foreign pagan gods in the city of Babylon. And their worship was centered on celestial forces and worship of the sun and the moon and the stars and rain and wind. And they had this elaborate system of rituals with priests and prophets and animal sacrifices and temple prostitutes and omens and incantations. Now put yourself in, a, in, the, in the shoes of, a, of an Israelite. Now living in the midst of this depraved city. You grew up in the capital city of Jerusalem like Daniel. Imagine that you were educated like Daniel, a member of the noble class, trained for a prestigious role in the city. But now all of a sudden you're not living in Jerusalem. Now you're in Babylon. How do you react? What would you do? How do you live in Babylon? That's the question we're looking at this morning. Do you infiltrate the government? Try to seek to overthrow it? Maybe assassinate Nebuchadnezzar? Maybe you'd try to escape and run off and and hide. 
Now look, this is relevant to us because as exiles, friends, we in a very real sense live in Babylon. In fact, in the New Testament, the apostles Peter and, and John use Babylon as a symbolic reference to the height of evil empire in their day, Rome, but in so doing, it's referencing really the entire evil empire of this world. Now, our experience as Christians, I, I do need to clarify before we read, there's not an exact correlation with what the Israelites went through in Babylon, right? While the Jewish exiles were forcibly taken out of their homeland, enslaved against their will in servitude into a foreign land, when we come to Christ, we enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what had been our homeland now becomes a foreign land, becomes a land of exile as we await our eternal home. Again, for the, egg, for the Israelites, their exile was primarily an act of judgment, and there was a missional component to it. But for us as Christians, there is a residual aspect of judgment to our life in the world. I mean, think about it. The evil, the dysfunction of this world is the consequence of human sin generally. And so while I don't think the period of the church is predominantly defined by judgment, there's an aspect of judgment just to the fact that we live in a world that suffers the consequences of evil. But our primary calling in exile is to live in the world not in a sentence of judgment, but as an opportunity for mission. Amen? So we're going to look briefly at some highlights, some high-level highlights of, of Daniel and his friends. And I want us to see four important lessons you see there in your bulletin this morning. Now look, Daniel and his friends were not recognized, <clears throat> they were not recognized as ambassadors of Israel, but they very much were living as faithful ambassadors to their heavenly king. You see here in the opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, that these men choose to participate in society and adjust to culture. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now some of you know this story, but here are these four young men of Judah. The cream of the crop, this noble birth. They were good looking, they were smart, they were well educated. They find themselves now entered against their will into this Babylonian training school. And they'd go through this intense three-year program where everything would be regimented. Their schedule, what they ate, what they wore, their, their sleep schedule, their diet. And they would learn the literature, the history, the language, the science of the Chaldean culture, sort of a subset of, of the Babylonian empire. And, and the Chaldeans, you'd often just refer to Babylonians as Chaldeans, kind of like you know Canadians, North Americans, same, same people group. And the idea was that they wanted these people to completely assimilate 
into the new culture so that they could be used to serve in high levels of government. And to seal the deal of their fate, they changed all of their names. Not just the exiles from Judah, but all of the conquered nations were assigned new names. And we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, from the famous story of the fiery furnace. Those were their Babylonian names. We just heard their Hebrew names. Now put yourself in their shoes. What would you do? Would you get defiant? Would you reject the the education? Would you say, I'm not doing it, put me in jail? Or would you just accept it and say, man, I'm pretty good off. I can live in the luxuries of the palace. I'm just going to embrace my new Babylonian identity. I mean, after all, you could maybe think in your heart, well, Yahweh's clearly rejected us, so why do I need to follow him? I'll just become a Babylonian. And there might have been other exiles that did that, maybe that sought to overthrow or that embraced their culture. But these four men navigate another approach. They don't reject the culture, but they also don't assimilate fully. They participate in society, and they adjust to the culture in the ways that they can. And that's the same, I believe, for us Christians called to live in exile. We don't withdraw. We are called to participate in society, in communities, in schools, in the workplaces. And and we do not assimilate into the culture, but we do adjust and adapt. And here's the difference. I think when you assimilate, you're, you're in essence coming into complete conformity to the customs, the values, the beliefs of the culture around you. You just give yourself up to be absorbed. But to make adjustments To adapt is to make little alterations in in external form, in your customs, in your language, in your dress, in your style, right? And yet, these men allowed their names to be changed. And i got to tell you, that's a hard one, right? A lot of Christians, a lot of Israelites would have said, you can't call, call me that. I'm Daniel, not Belteshazzar. But it seems that while they hold on to their Hebrew names and they're used throughout the book, it seems that they do allow themselves to be given new Babylonian names. Why? Because they're ambassadors living between two cultures. They hold on to their true identity in their homeland with God in heaven. They hold on to their Hebrew names, but for the purposes of their ambassadorship, they take on new names. It's an an adaptation that they're able to make. This is what cross-cultural missionaries do, right? Think about the Lippies. When the Lippies served as missionaries in the Gambia, they lived among the Wolof people, a, a remote village outside of, of, of the big city, a Muslim people, and, and, and the Lippies lived there, I think it was 11 years, 11 years total they served overseas, and, and, and Keith taught farming practices to the community, and he taught the gospel. Now to do that, to have any opportunity to do that in that culture, they had to learn the language. They had to learn to eat and to like their food, right? They had to adopt some of the customs and the practices. They had to adopt the, the dress. Keith told me that, that he would wear the long decorative shirts that the men of the culture wore. But Michelle would not leave the house without covering her head. Now, she didn't believe that she needed to cover her head, not to dishonor Allah, but she did that living in a Muslim community as a way to adapt and to adjust. And we as well, need to adapt, adapt in those external ways to participate in society. Listen, Daniel grew up as a young man thinking he was going to serve God in Jerusalem. Now he finds himself in Babylon, but you know what he learns? God is still king even in Babylon. 
And he learns that he can serve the king in exile just as easily as he could. Well, maybe not just as easily. But he can still serve the king in exile. Friends, despite our fallen secular world, God is still king and we still can serve him. We must serve him. And so we need to find ways to adapt to culture in ways that are appropriate, to learn the language. I think that's one of the most crucial things that we can do is to listen to our friends and neighbors and co-workers, listen to them, understand their heart, understand what they value, understand the brokenness that they live in, hear their stories, listen to the terms that they use, the concepts that are important to them. Become servants of the people around you. Learn their values, learn their culture, understand their language. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this in his ministry, and I hope we can say this about ourselves. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew. To those under the law I became as one under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Friends, Paul was not being fake. He was not being a hypocrite. He did do things differently when he was with Jews than he did with Gentiles. And you may have neighbors that understand one set of terminology and co-workers that understand another. We become servants of all for the sake of the Gospel that by all means we might save some by God's grace. So first of all, we see that these men participated in society and they adjust to culture. But there's a second crucial part to this. Secondly, you see that they resolve not to compromise, not to ever compromise, no matter the cost. Look at what it says in verse 8 of chapter 1. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, verse 12, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Guys, these four Hebrews adapted in any way that they could, but they had resolved in their heart never to defile themselves. And we know that the laws of Moses had very strict regimented dietary regulations. And I don't know, maybe the Babylonians were, you know, serving up bacon and shrimp and and the Hebrews were like, we can't do that. It was likely part of the Babylonian culture to sacrifice food to to pagan gods prior to eating it. And so maybe they knew they couldn't participate in that. Look, in the Hebrews, they could adapt to language and to dress, but they could not adapt to this because it was a moral issue. Eating the king's food would have caused them to compromise their purity. Now, Daniel respects the authority of the court. He goes and he asks for permission. You see that? He knows he's submitted to authority. He asks for permission to only eat vegetables. And there's some initial pushback, but Daniel's wise and he's able to present an argument 
to get special permission, and they set upon a 10-day test the original Daniel plan, right? And what's amazing is that at the end of 10 days, they're healthier, healthier, stronger, better looking than the rest of their classmates. Now, of course, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, this would not be the last time that they had to resolve not to compromise. You know, in chapter 3, the king Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge statue and says, everybody must bow to the statue or else be thrown into the fiery furnace. And we know the story that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refused to bow. And the king confronts them and says, I'm going to give you one more chance. Bow to the statue or else you're going to go to the furnace. And in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16... These faithful men respond like this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These These guys are resolved. Their faith is strong. They know God can deliver them. Yet they say, but if not, even if you put us to death, we remain unmoved. And they are thrown into the fiery furnace. Famously, as we just sung about this morning, the divine presence of God manifests in the flame. And they are miraculously delivered. And their unwavering trust in God has a dramatic impact on Nebuchadnezzar. He he sends out an edict across the land protecting the Israelite people from persecution because of their faith. Daniel's not talked about in that story in chapter 3, but he has his own challenge in chapter 6. Some of you know that story where his political rivals are jealous of Daniel's favor and they try to coerce him into danger with the king. At this point, there's another king called Darius and, and his political rivals... Uh, put a, a law into effect that nobody for 30 days, nobody can pray to any mediator except Darius. Daniel, of course, knows he can't do that. He faithfully prays in his home as he does every day to the true King Yahweh. Darius hears about it. Darius is heartbroken because Daniel has earned favor. He's in a position of leadership in the kingdom. The king is heartbroken. He doesn't want to punish Daniel. And he reluctantly sends Daniel where? Into the lion's den. And the next morning, King Darius comes running to the lion's den to check on Daniel to see if Daniel has in fact been saved. And of course, famously, God has done a miraculous work and shut up the mouths of the lion. And again, the king is, is blown away by Daniel's faith, by the power of Yahweh to save his people. He again sends out a decree across the land, exalting the living God. Daniel continues to prosper in his government role. Again and again, they faced the, 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 the threat to compromise in their, and they were sustained in their resolve. Now look, you and I face the threat of compromise every day and we don't have to deal with the fiery furnace of the lion's den, but there are golden statues erupted all over our culture that call us to bow down to money, bow down to sex, bow down to politics, bow bow down to personal immorality, bow down to the worldviews and the perspectives of other people. Will we compromise? I was talking recently with the director of of a non-profit Christian ministry. He said that one of his board members called him 
one of his board members from a different area called him and said, hey, our community is, is putting together a fundraising effort. We have the opportunity to be a part of this fundraising effort and get lots of money for the ministry, but it's come up that they're concerned about our position related to sexuality and gender. Is it okay if I just tell the leaders of the community that, that our chapter of the organization doesn't really do that? And this director of this nonprofit had to, had to answer this board member. And, and, and by God's grace, he held firm. He held firm in their biblical position. And in the process, they lost, who knows how many thousands of dollars in donations. He may end up losing this board member. But we all face these kinds of pressures, pressures to compromise our faith, our convictions, our values, pressures to, to give in to the identity of the world. And, and living in a foreign culture can be overwhelming, can it not? I introduced to you this author, Paul Williams, in his book, Exiles on Mission, last week. He says this, Daniel and his fellow Hebrews were overwhelmed by a foreign culture, reinforced by having their names changed to Babylonian names and being forced to learn Babylonian language and study astrology and culture. They were completely immersed in this alien culture, and the pressure to compromise on their identity as God's people was immense. He goes on to say this about ourselves. Our culture also attempts to rename us and to overwhelm us with its cultural stories. Our willingness to maintain our allegiance to Christ is fundamentally challenged in the context of exile. The feeling of being captive aliens trapped in a culture that is rejecting our values generates fear that we don't belong, that our identity is being overwhelmed, that we will be rejected if we don't fit in. Listen to this. Fear makes us vulnerable to assimilate to withdraw or to be aggressive towards those we blame or who threaten us. He says but we need to be reminded by Jesus of our allegiance to Him and our acceptance by Him. His voice and His naming need to cut across the voices and naming of our culture. We can't listen to the world and be driven by fear. We need to listen to Jesus about our true identity. And through our identity grounded in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, that empowers us, we too can stand and resolve and never compromise. Remember, we are in the world, but not of the world. Now at times, the Scriptures tell us that, that the world may hate us for this. And our response is to stand in courage and humility and faithfulness. And I pray that we can not only just stand in courage and boldness, but that we can also live with grace, with humility to the world, with love for the world. See, look, the point is not to draw people to our morality, Hear me, the point is to draw people to our Savior, amen? To draw them to our Savior. And as we walk out our purity, as we walk in allegiance to Christ and Christ alone, your faith, our faith can be a profound statement to a watching world. And so we adjust, but we never compromise. We adapt, but we never assimilate. Because we are called to be separate. 2 Corinthians 6 The Scriptures say, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate. And so we hold firm to our faith. We see all that Daniel accomplished in his life and all the ways that he impacted the kingdom. But it was all grounded in that initial training in the Babylonian court. Flip back to chapter 1 in Daniel. We'll do these next two points quickly. We see thirdly here that they excel and they seek 
the welfare of the city. See, Daniel chapter 1, they go through three years of training. Imagine that it's now graduation day and these elite nobles that have been trained in culture and science and literature, they come out and the, the director of the institute comes out to present all of the graduates to King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And you imagine the horn being blown, presenting the graduating class of 602 BC from Nebuchadnezzar's Institute of Babylonian Royal Service. And the graduates all come out and the king tests them and he quizzes them. And guess what? Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they're at the top of the class. And the king can't stump them. In fact, all of their answers and all of their learning and all of the education is ten times better than anybody else in the institute. Verse 17 says that God gave them understanding. I'm sure they worked hard, but God prospered them. Now remember, they're doing all of this, learning all of this in a godless empire. And yet it was the Lord's will for them to prosper. Not for their sake, not so they could be the top of their class, but for God's plan. Christians, we need to excel in every field that we enter. And if we're going to change the culture, we need to understand the culture. If we're going to impact people, we need to understand people. And so we should study the hardest, work the hardest, be the smartest, be the best in school, in business, in science, in government, in art, in healthcare, in whatever field you are in, Christians should stand out with the living God by our side. That doesn't mean we get caught up in the rat race, and we talked about that yesterday, man, around the campfire. We don't get caught up in the rat race seeking to build our own profile. This is not for personal gain. This is not for our own selfish ambition, but to honor God, to be a witness to a watching world, and to prosper, listen, to prosper the welfare of the places where we live. The book of Jeremiah prophesies about this time of Babylonian exile. And there were false prophets who said, look, you're only going to be in Babylon for a few years. Just wait it out and come back. And God inspired Jeremiah to tell the people, no, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And you've got to figure out a way to live in exile. And listen to what Jeremiah prophesies in chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. We live in exile for God's glory, and for the good of His world. Can you imagine being taken into exile, knowing it was not your true home, knowing it was only temporary? What do you do? Do you invest in society? Do you bother building a house, planting a garden? Do you even bother getting married and having kids? What's the point? You're in Babylon. This is not your true home. We read in the accounts of the early church, there were some Christians. They thought, you know what? Jesus is the Savior. He's coming back any day now. Why get a job? Why get married? Why have kids? Jesus is returning. And yet the words of Jeremiah ring true for Christians as well. 
We are called to excel in all that we do and to seek the welfare of the city. And no, we are not citizens of this world, but we are called to invest in our communities, to excel in all that we do, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, have grandchildren, teach them about Christ, teach them to live as a light, seek the welfare of your city, of your county, of your company, multiply in Babylon. Christians, we cannot decrease. We need to pray for the city, pray for the nation. Because in its welfare, we find our welfare. And the kingdom of God will come on earth as it is in heaven through us. See, the Israelites had always been called to be a light to the nations. And so God said, you know what? I'm going to put you right in the middle of the capital city of Babylon, the greatest pagan empire on earth at that time, for your light to shine. And He strategically places us wherever we are to do the same. What would it look like practically? Pray, talk with your spouse, talk with your small group. What would it look like practically for us to seek the welfare of Southern York County, to seek the welfare of our community? Not just to exercise our faith in the world, but to exercise our faith for the world, the world that God loves. And so Christian, excel in all that you do. Seek the welfare of the city. And lastly, fourthly, and we'll talk more about this next week, speak truth and point people to God. We see that the Hebrews in the book of Daniel do that. Real quick, you know the story of chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has this troubling dream. He's staying up all night. He calls all the wise men. He says, tell me what my dream is and tell me what it means. And the wise men say, well, you tell us the dream first. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, so that I know you're being legitimate. Tell me my dream. Tell me the interpretation. The wise men say, nobody can do that. And Nebuchadnezzar says, fine, you're useless to me. You're all going to die. Daniel hears about this and he sends word to the captain of the guard. He says, tell Nebuchadnezzar to wait. Give me a little bit of time and I will tell him his dream and his interpretation. Daniel gathers with his three friends and he says, pray. And they pray and they seek God. God gives Daniel supernatural revelation. He stands before Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar says, is it true, Daniel? Do you know my dream? Do you have the interpretation? And Daniel says this in chapter 2, verse 27. He says, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 30, Daniel says, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king. Daniel says, Nobody can do what you're asking. But there is a God in heaven. Can you say that with me this morning? But there is a God in heaven. Daniel does what nobody else can do. And how much credit does he take? Zero. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, there's nothing in me that's done this. There's a God in heaven. He points the king of Babylon to the true king of heaven and earth. He speaks truth and he points people to God. See, we serve in society. Yes, we adapt. Yes, we excel. Yes, we, press, we, we prosper. Although at times we don't prosper. At times we face setbacks. We face obstacles. And yet still we pray. Still we serve. But no matter what, we speak truth and we point people to God. The only thing that we have for the world around us. See, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. And, and what? 
Think, wow, you're really great. No, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's why we shine our light. That's why we prosper. Friends, I got a phone call last night at 9 o'clock, and I knew that it wasn't good. And I answered the phone, and the man on the other end from our congregation was, was broken up in tears. He said, I just found out a few hours ago my, my neighbor that I've known for 15 years died tragically in a motorcycle accident. And at 5 p.m. yesterday, the police and the coroner showed up in his neighbor's house and told this wife that she was now a widow. Told her teenage daughter that she had no father. And the police left, and the very first thing this woman did in her despair was to stumble to the house next door. And he said she just fell down on our steps, weeping. In her moment of deepest darkness, deepest despair, collapsing in brokenness and in shock. And she goes to this family in our congregation who sat with her for hours last night crying and praying. And in her moment of deepest darkness and despair, God 15 years ago planted these Christians as her neighbor and they built relationship and they earned trust and earned her heart. And yesterday they were able to bring a, just a glimmer of light. Ambassadors. They, they, they were able to serve as ambassadors of God's kingdom. To cry with her. To speak life to her in her hour of need. This is what Paul wrote to the Colossians. We'll close with this and then we'll worship together. Paul writes, at the same time, pray also for us. That God may open to us a door for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And then he says to us, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Friends, we have a certain amount of time here in exile. Maybe it's 70 years Maybe it's seven more years, maybe it's seven more days, but the scriptures say make the best use of the time. Pray that the Lord would open a door. Pray that you would have boldness to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray that your your speech would be bold, but also gracious, seasoned with salt. We live this life here in Babylon in exile, and we are called by God's grace to participate in society and to adjust to the culture and the people around us in all the ways that we can. And yet to do so with resolve, with resolve never to compromise, no matter the cost. And we are called to excel, to seek the welfare of the city, to speak truth, and to point people to God. Amen? Stand with me. Father in heaven, give us grace. We stand here today because Jesus went to the cross. We are called by Your name because our Savior died for us. We are adopted into Your family because the Son of God took on our sin, received the brokenness and the rejection of the world. We have a calling to live on mission. We have a calling to be sustained here in exile because Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus conquered sin and death and the devil. He left us in the world not alone, but sending His Spirit sending His Spirit to fill us and empower us. And so, God, we worship together. Not a single one of us can can live out this calling on our own. We worship together as a community of faith, a family of faith, 
gathering now in this embassy as ambassadors. Give us grace to walk in resolve, to walk in compassion, to walk in boldness, to walk in humility. Hear us now as we worship, as we honor the only king that we are submitted to, as we worship the only king that we live for. We praise you and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.